Happy Lord's Day. It's good to be face-to-face before the Lord in worship together this morning. Have you ever set out on a trip only to realize that you have forgotten something crucial? You get to the beach and you realize, alas, no bathing suit. You've got to go down to the store with that big shark mouth and, you know, find a new one and it doesn't quite fit right. You go to brush your teeth and no toothbrush. You look all around and you can't quite find your phone charger. I had one experience wherein I went on a trip and committed a pretty extreme faux pas. Mike and I were headed to Together for the Gospel back in 2018, and we got to our first pit stop to get some gas, and I was going to go into the gas station and get some combos or a sandwich or Skittles or something delicious like that, and I realized I had forgotten my wallet. I mean, we were going to be gone for a week. Lucky for me, you know, Mike is a man of means, And so I just informed him, you're going to bankroll my luxurious lifestyle the rest of the week. We come to 2 Kings in chapter 3 this morning, and we discover that the king in the north, though he gets a coalition of three kings together to go to war, forgets something crucial. He forgets to look to the word of the Lord. And later on, at the end of the chapter, we see that his troops forget to respond to the word with faith. That's our main idea this morning. Don't forget the word of the Lord. Respond to the word with faith. You want to make it more portable this week? And I think I've used this one before, but you know, don't stop believing, right? Think journey. Keep believing the Lord's word. Or maybe, if that doesn't work for you, carry on my wayward son, right? Keep going. Keep believing the word of the Lord. Outline is there before you. Let's pray and begin our time together this morning. Father, what we have not give us, what we know not teach us, and what we are not make us. Do all these things through your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. 4. He put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung. Notice that word. It's the same word in Genesis when we talk about a man leaving his family to cling to his wife. He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. A new king and the same old story. Jehoram is the brother of Ahaziah and the son of Ahab, and the 
verdict on his reign is he's evil. So there is a little bright spot there. He's not as bad as Ahab and Jezebel, his parents. And so first thing to notice, I think, is that there are degrees of evil. There are degrees of wretchedness. All sin is alike in that it separates us from God, but all sin is not equally heinous before the Lord. With me? Right. Murder is worse than hatred. Adultery is worse than lust. Ahab's all-out idolatry is worse than the syncretism of Jeroboam adopted by Jehoram. This is important because God judges everyone justly. The punishment always fits the crime. You can see that explicated in the law. You see it in the New Testament, right? Jesus says, James, the brother of Jesus, says, uh, not many of you should presume to become teachers because you will be judged more strictly. It is worse to profess Christ and to teach wrongly about who he is than it is to simply not believe. There are degrees of sin. And yet, as we said, all sin puts us at odds with God separates us from God. So while Jehoram can say, I'm better than my mother and my father, more righteous than they, he cannot say he is right with God, for he has rejected God's word. He's clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I think there's a little lesson for us here in these first three verses. We can, we have a penchant for comparing ourselves to others. And usually we choose pretty low-hanging fruit so that we can sort of inflate our own sense of goodness and self-worth. You know, I'm not as bad as Ted Bundy or Adolf Hitler. I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm a, not as bad as David robbing banks every week. Really, I'm a good person. Why would God be angry at me? I eat my vegetables. I drive the speed limit, sometimes. I pay my taxes. I mean, I even go to church. I'm better than most people, right? That's how we think. But when we compare ourselves to others, we commit uh, two evils. We tell two lies. First, we tell ourselves that everybody that we are comparing ourselves to is far worse than they actually are. And we tell ourselves that we are far better than we actually are. The reality is, when we reflect truly on our lives and how we even live up to our own standards, recognize we fall woefully short. And then we consider how we stack up against God's holy word. What it really means to be a good person is to live a life that's consistent with God's commands. That's what it means to be good. 
We think about how we stack up against God's commands and God's word. Have we kept his word faithfully all the time? And we go, not such a pretty picture. I was running the other day, as I do, and was listening to a sermon on Romans 1 through 3, and the speaker encouraged the listener to think about the worst person they know in their lives. And I went off in my, you know, memory palace and started trying to think of the worst people I know. I was like, you know, Mike, no, he's okay. Tim, eh, you know, he's pretty good. And the the more I thought, the more I realized, I think I'm the worst person I know. Because I know how many times I have acted lovelessly in rebellion against God's word. I know every sinful and evil inclination of my heart. And then I uh, proved how terrible I am because I went, wow, I really am the worst person I know. Look at that, I realized it. There's some pride in there and I was like, well, this is just a, this is not a good place that I'm in. But I do think that honest self-reflection helps us to realize that we really are wretched, evil people in need of a Savior. Honest self-reflection gets us to the place where Paul was when he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, friends. Jesus didn't come to save good people. Jesus did not come to save those who think that they are right with God. He did not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. Jesus came to save sinners. And when we reflect upon who we are and how we have broken God's law, we recognize our need to be made right with God. We recognize that we deserve punishment for our wrongdoing, and we realize we need a Savior. And the good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When we realize that we are the foremost of sinners, we realize that Christ Jesus came to save us. And it's then... It's then that we come to Christ poor in spirit, empty hands of faith, and say, I can't make myself right with God. I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I'm at war with the God I was created to know and love. I don't know him. I want to know him, not as judge any longer. I want to know him as father, and only you can do that. Honest self-reflection leads us away from comparison and to Christ. Dear Christian, do not become complacent in your faith. Do not become so comfortable with Christ that you, you begin to puff out your chest in pride, thinking yourself better than your fellows. Remember what you have been saved from. Remember what it costs to redeem you. 
remember that the Father gave up his only begotten Son so that he might adopt you into his family when you come to the Son in repentant faith. Empty your hands of self-righteousness and cling to the cross of Christ. Non-Christian, Jesus came for bad people. And though you might do many good things and be really more pleasant than even many Christians you know, that will not save you. Only Christ can save you. Come to him in faith. We learn that Jehoram, though he's a little bit better than Ahab and Jezebel, who are the worst of the worst, he is not good, not walking with God, but evil in the sight of the Lord. New king, same old story. Israel's decline continues, and we get a picture of that decline this time by going to war with Moab, look with me at verse 4. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel and he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. We have a real... Exodus 17 flavor to these events, right? The people are marching through the wilderness, wandering, and there is no water. And just like in the Exodus, they begin grumbling against God. You'll notice Jehoram didn't consult with God before this military venture. He didn't consult with the word of the Lord or the prophets of the Lord before he decided to march through the wilderness. But now that things have gone sideways, now it's God's fault. Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Providence is a most convenient horse to bear the saddles of our folly. Friends, providence is no excuse for negligence. 
You know, his blaming of the Lord here would be similar to me uh, setting out on a trip anywhere. Well, it could be 20 minutes, it could be 20 hours, but I get in the car, I put all my kids in there, and then we get some miles down the road, and all of a sudden they say to me, Dad, do you have any snacks? And I say, no, I forgot to pack them. And then all of a sudden they begin to grumble. And the key to traveling with kids is snacks. They start grumble and it's chaos. And then I just sit back and I say, Alas, the Lord has brought grumbling children against me. This is all God's fault. Of course, of course, God rules over everything. Of course, He is sovereign. But God's sovereignty does not eliminate our responsibility. What we do and how we live matter. We should be careful that we don't use God's providence as an excuse for our own negligence and failures. We need to be a people who take responsibility for our actions who are willing to honestly confess our sins to the Lord and call upon Jesus for help. That's precisely what happens here with Jehoshaphat. He gives us another, that we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you moment. Jehoram grumbles against God, and Jehoshaphat, looks to the Lord for help. Look at verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shephat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. All we can do now is pray. Out of water and out of options, Jehoshaphat finally comes to his senses and says, oh, we can pray. I mean, how often have we repeated this mistake? All we can do now is pray. We, we treat prayer, you know, like a trip to the DMV, filled out the paperwork, and now all I can do is wait. We, we approach prayer as if it is a waste of time and productivity. Prayer is always our best first step. Our instincts as God's people should be always to seek his will in his word and in prayer. But notice here, even though it's not their first step, their hardship does call them to call out to God. And that is a good thing. Spurgeon said, when tribulation drives us to the Lord, it is an unspeakable blessing and makes affliction prove to us one of our greatest mercies. 
It is a good wave that washes the mariner onto the rock. It is a blessed trouble which wafts the Christian nearer to his God. So I think there are two things that we can learn here. One is we should go to the Lord first. The second thing is that it's never too late to go to the Lord. And that when hardship or trials or difficulties cause us to remember to turn our eyes to the Lord our God, they are a blessing to us. This is one of the many reasons that we can rejoice when we find ourselves in the wilderness and without water. We are forced to stop relying on ourselves and to begin depending on God more practically, more desperately. They call out to God for a word. They go down to Elisha and they get an answer. Verse 13, And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Elisha responds to the initial request with all the winsome charm of Elijah. He tells Jehoram, call out to the gods that you've wed yourself to. Go to the Lord of the flies like your brother. Go to Baal who goes on vacation and has to take trips to the restroom and can't produce fire on the mountain when his people call out to him. Go to him like your daddy did. Don't come to the real God after marrying yourself to the false gods. Look to them for help. And Jehoram says, no, no, this is the Lord's doing. This is his fault. You're his prophet. Do something. And Elisha says, look, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look at you. I wouldn't even see you. I wouldn't give you the time of day. That is a chilling thing to hear from Elisha. I think it's chilling because it tips us off to something important. We can so stop up our ears to the word of God that he will neither look at us nor see us. It is possible to give oneself over to idolatry in such a way that your heart becomes so hardened that it is not willing to hear any truth from the Lord. Elisha says, I won't even look at you or see you. I would not help you. But he does look at Jehoram. He does see Jehoram. He does offer him a word from the Lord. Why? Well, the answer's there in verse 14. Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Because Jehoshaphat 
loves the Lord like his father Asa, because Jehoshaphat is the Davidic king and has the favor of God, the prophet of God is going to bless this rebellious king, Jehoram. You see that? Because Jehoram is with Jehoshaphat, he is going to be given salvation. He's going to be rescued from his waterlessness, and he's going to be promised victory against his enemy. He's going to be rescued and sent to battle. Because he's joined to Jehoshaphat. Friends, God rescues those who are joined to his favored king. That true seed of the woman that will save, that true son of David who is going to rule and reign over all things, is Jesus Christ. And God has favor on and rescues from death and from hell all who are joined to Jesus by faith. When you are joined to Jesus by faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit, his death becomes your death, and his life becomes your life, such that God doesn't have any punishment left for you, but only the blessing that is due to Jesus, such that you move from being a rebel idolater like Jehoram, who God would neither look at nor see, to being a son of God who has the smile of God, who has that Arionic blessing that God makes his face to shine upon you and gives you his peace. There is no greater joy. There is no greater privilege. Non-Christian, you can know the smile of God. He will see you in Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. Join Jesus. And move from death to life. And move on to mission for the Lord. He saves people from death for himself, and for his purposes in the world. When we come to Christ, he sends us out on mission and into battle. We are the children of the light, marching to victory in the world as the kingdom of God grows and spreads like a mustard seed. We work day after day, proclaiming the good news of Christ crucified, buried, raised, and returning, knowing God keeps his promises, knowing that we are moving onward to that final victory. We take God at his word and are rescued, and then we get to join the battle of the king against evil. We should be joined to Jesus because Jehoram is with Jehoshaphat because God loves Jehoshaphat. He gives 
Jehoram is given from Elisha the promise of God. Listen to Elisha, verse 15. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools, for thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Elisha calls for some Credence Clearwater revival on the jukebox, gets a word from the Lord, and then delivers God's promise to this people who are joined to Jehoshaphat. They will be given water. And not only that, they will be given victory. Imagine yourself as one of these soldiers out there. You have been wandering through the wilderness for seven days, and now your camelback is empty. There's no water. And this word from Elisha comes... How do you respond to the news that water is on the way? You get, you get that camelback ready. You sit down next to those stream beds. You gra- gather all the pots and pans. It is interesting. One of the translations in verse 16, it's literally making that weighty full of ponds. And so there's two ways to, to interpret it. You could, you could read it uh, as the ESV renders it. I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Or you can render it as a command, make this valley full of ditches. And the idea is that the people would then dig out ditches to receive the water. And you can render it either way equally, but I do think the latter way helps us to see how we are to respond to the promises of God. We're to act in faith. And so knowing that the water is coming, they're, they're going to prepare these soldiers, they're parched, they're getting, you know, they're going to dig a cistern. Get the camelback ready. God's blessing is coming. Friends, we must respond to the word of God in faith. Do you live that way? I mean, really, do you live in light of the promises of God? I mean, do you work for the glory of God's kingdom knowing that victory will ultimately come? Do you live ready to give up your life for the gospel? Knowing that you will be raised to life and that the church will be crowned with victory. Do you walk in such a way that indicates you actually believe this book? Or do you live just like you normally would? We should respond to God's word with faith, believing this message, believing in Jesus should change everything about us. 
I can't believe I'm going to make a twist and turns illusion here. It was VBS this week, right? And they said, Jesus changes the game. It's so true. He changes everything about us. Changes how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what entertainment we consume. I mean, there's a reason we're here on a Sunday, and we call it the Lord's Day, and we gather together to sing and pray and listen to God's word proclaimed. Believing in Jesus changes how we live. We should respond to the word in faith. If we really believe that God's word works, it will change how we live. Also, we can't move on from this portion without noticing verse 18. I love this. It says, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He's like, it's no big deal for God to bring you water without rain or wind. And so because this is too small of a thing for God to do, he's also going to give you victory over the enemy. Isn't it God's way to bless beyond measure? Isn't it wonderful that God's goodness tends toward extravagance and opulence? He is rich, and he loves to spoil his people with gifts. I mean, Ephesians has it right. God can do above and beyond all that we ask or think. I wonder, friends, have you asked God for anything big? You think he can do it? It is a light thing for the Lord to bless his people. He can do all things. He makes this incredible promise and then he keeps it. Verse 20. The next morning, about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom until the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood! The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. I don't know what this accent is, but we're going to roll with it. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites until they fled before them. And they went forth, striking the Moabites as they went, and they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Hareseth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. God keeps his promises. He provides the water and in providing the water provides victory to his people. I love how the camera sort of shifts and gets put on the Moabites and they're looking over the horizon and the way that the sun hits off the water makes it appear as blood. And of course, uh, with Exodus in the back of our minds, we're still thinking of the Nile turned to blood and this wilderness wandering going on. And once more, God's going to provide victory to his people. 
They, they see the, the blood-looking water, and they go, these kings have turned on each other. They've killed each other. Ours is the victory. Hail to the conquering heroes. Let's race out and collect all the goodies they've left behind. And then they get there. They get up on Israel, and they are surprised. The three kings are ready. And the Moabites are routed. God's promise is kept. All the words of Elisha come true. It's a rout. And then we come to verse 26. When the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Wait, what? That was not what we expected. What's, what's going on here? The events are clear, but unsettling. Israel has all but completed this total victory. They've got Mesha, king of Moab, boxed in. He can't even break through the weakest part of their lines with 700 swordsmen. And so now on the wall of the city, he offers his son as a sacrifice in the sight of all Israel. He sacrifices his son, probably to the false god Chemosh or Molech. And then we read, great wrath was against Israel, and everybody went home. We have questions, and there are many options for understanding this difficult passage. I wrestled with it all week, but I think I'm right. I think I've got it right. And I'll tell you what I think in a moment, but let me give you the four traditional options to choose from. Uh, so that you can happily disagree with me if you decide that these are better routes. Verse one, I'm sorry, option one. The wrath belongs to the false god Chemosh or Molech. Chemosh or Molech, whichever false god it is, is able to overcome the will of the one true God and thus rout Israel. This option fails because it is beyond unlikely that the author of Kings is all of a sudden ready to entertain the existence of false gods. I mean, he has taken every measure possible to teach us that false gods are not gods at all. Option number two, the wrath belongs to Yahweh, the God of Israel. This option fails because it doesn't explain why God would become all of a sudden wrathful towards his people in response to Mesha's child sacrifice. Important to note that God finds child sacrifice abominable. Option three, the wrath belongs to the Israelites themselves. The word wrath in this case is understood to be upon Israel, a way of describing their indignation and horror at Mesha's act of child sacrifice. 
And so they sort of see him in his desperation kill his son, and they're just so sickened by it that they, they just go home. I think this option fails because it relies upon a suspect understanding of how the word wrath functions in the text. And it gives way too much credit to idolatrous Israel. Some of them worshipped Chemosh and Molech. And they've never gotten this worked up over idolatry before, so why now? Option four, the wrath belongs to the Moabites. So the sacrifice of Mesha's son on the wall serves to fire up all of his troops. They get their adrenaline going, and they summon a rage that has not been seen to this point, and they're able to repel Israel. I favored this one, but I think it's also unsatisfying because it fails based on the context. If you look back at verse 26, we learn that he's already tried to break against Israel with 700 swordsmen and was unable. Right? They already tried this. Our backs are against the wall. It's us against the world. Let's you know, go out. Break them apart. It didn't work. So what's going on here? Whose wrath is this? Well, I'm going to take a minute to try and explain my position. But I think that at the end of the day, it's no one's wrath. What do I mean? I think the wrath is imagined. You see, the author has taken pains to show us theologically that false gods are not gods and that they are without power. But what have we seen repetitively in Kings? Well, at least in the north, where does Ahab look for help? To the false god Baal. Where does his son Ahaziah look for help when he's fallen out of a window and on his deathbed? He looks to the god of Goliath rather than the god of David. Our author calls that false god the lord of the flies to make fun of him. And so now we have the people coming against the Moabites. They've been believing God's word, moving forward, felling trees, casting stones, ruining the land, and then they're confronted with this gross idolatry. The author of Kings knows that false gods are no gods. But the Israelites themselves believe that the gods of other nations are real. Right? The Israelites themselves, they even worship some of these false gods. So what do you think happens in their minds when they see Mesha offering his son on the wall? All of a sudden, their imagination gets away from them. When they see this ritual, they lose their faith, and they believe that Mesha is successful in calling Chemosh or Molech or whichever god he's offering his son to. He's successful in bringing that false god against them. They lose faith when they imagine the wrath of a false god working against them in response to this sacrifice. And so here's, here's what I'm saying. The author makes unclear whose wrath this is coming against Israel because it's no one's wrath. Because a false god 
is no God, and the wrath is imagined. He leaves us working this question over in our mind, whose wrath comes against Israel? Because there is no who. The God to which Mesha's son is offered has no more power than the Lord of the flies or Baal because he does not exist. Israelites imagine that wrath has come against them, and so they go home. And so I think the author is sort of making fun of this false god, just like he did in chapter 1, even though this horrendous act of sacrifice leads Israel to lose their faith and to return home. They aren't able to have total victory because they stop believing in the promises of God. They imagine wrath has come against them. As a father of a whole gaggle of children, I actually made a mistake the other day and said I had eight rather than six to one of my buddies, and he was like, did you really have two more kids? I'm like, I don't know, maybe. But as a father of, of a few children, I am fortunate to sleep through the whole night much more often than you would think. Some of that is well-practiced ignoring and shutting my eyes real hard and praying that Chelsea will get up. And some of it is, uh, we've just been really fortunate. Our kids don't get out of bed a ton once they've gone through the baby sleep training phase. But every once in a while, a kid will stumble out of bed in the night, and they will come to me and rouse me awake, which is no small feat. Sort of treat them like Elisha. Go to your mother, who you've trusted before now. Don't come to me. But I'll say, what's wrong? And I think of Benjamin, who's come most recently. Dad, there's a monster in my room. He's in the closet. It's under the bed. It's behind the curtain. You see, there's no monster there. But Benjamin imagines that there is. And because he believes there's a monster there, he has a really hard time believing my word that there is not. His faith in his father's word, fails because it is overpowered by his imagination. That is what I think happens here. They begin responding to God's word with faith, and they move, and they have victory after victory, but then they're confronted by the world and the world's worship and the world's gods, and all of a sudden their faith shrinks, and they're not so willing to be obedient anymore. Man, that sounds really familiar. I wonder how often we have missed out on reaping the rewards of faith because we have given ourselves over to imagined fears and anxieties. It is a foolish thing to believe counterfeit gods have any real or decisive power in God's world. We must be a people who respond to God's word with faith. This isn't the first time in Israel's history that they fail to take hold of God's promise because of their unbelief. You don't have to look hard to find this all over the place. I think of the spies. They go and spy out the promised land and then they come back and they say, we cannot take this land. There are giants in there. 
They grumble against Moses, and the consequence of their unbelief is 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Or more readily, I think of Judges. It was a long time ago we went through Judges. But you'll remember the opening chapter, the people are supposed to take the promised land. God says he'll give it over to them. But we read this very troubling sequence of events where over and over again we find that the people are not able to drive out the land's inhabitants. Sort of have captured that feeling in verse 19 of Judges 1. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But the people of Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because the inhabitants had chariots of iron. You read that text and you go, what? Could God not overcome chariots? Like, like They were on their way to victory. God's going to give us victory. But oh no, the enemy has chariots. Can't overcome. God fails. Can't overcome Bronze Age, Iron Age, I don't know, Old Age chariots. Not even as good as you know, like first century chariots. He's with Judah. And we're to believe the chariots of the enemy stop him? Well, no. We keep reading in Judges. The Lord speaks at the beginning of chapter 2. We read this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bohem, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. You see what God is saying to the people in Judges? It's not that you could not take the land, it's that you would not take the land. It's the same thing here in 2 Kings 3. It's not that they could not overcome Mesha, it's that they would not. But instead of believing chariots to be too much for God to overcome, they believe this false God who doesn't exist is too much for God to overcome. Their unbelief robs them of what God would have given them. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how often in life we believe that we cannot but the reality is we would not or we will not. What is God calling you to do in response to his word in faith that you are saying, I can't do that? It's not that you can't. It's that you do not have the faith to obey. Ask God to give you more grace and strength to obey him so that you might work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You can do that. You can work hard. You can work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you. Friends, we must be willing to move on from the 
I don't want to say move on. We, we have to hold together in our Christian lives both the indicatives and the imperatives. We get Christianity wrong when we settle down in one over or against the other. The indicative is you have been saved by grace through faith to the glory of God. That's the indicative. You've received the grace of God. You've been moved from death to life. You've been born again. And because you've been born again, you must therefore, here's the imperative, walk in the newness of life. When you've been adopted into the family of God, indicative, the imperative follows. You're adopted into the family of God and therefore you live up to the family name. If you are rooted in the Jesus vine, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance and with faithfulness. You will obey God's words. You will live your life in faith, believing that it really is true that Jesus Christ got up from the dead. You will live believing that Jesus Christ really is working against evil in the world. You will live believing that the church really is going to be victorious. You will live believing that Jesus Christ really is returning, that he's going to cast the dragon of death into the lake of fire. He's going to punish all those who are in rebellion against him, and he is going to restore all things to the way they ought to be, that he's going to bring a world that's better even than Eden ever was, that you're going to be before the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And you'll Maybe try to cry a tear, but there won't be any because God has wiped them away. Sadness will be a memory of the past. Lion and lamb will lay down together. You will sing before the throne of God, beneath the smile of God, according to the promise of God. Do you believe that's where you're headed? If you do... Act like it. Live like it. Ready? These soldiers, they believe water's coming, and so they make the valley full of ditches. They get their vessels ready for the water. They believe the word of God, and so they sharpen their swords to go to battle. And then they falter. Brothers and sisters, we need to get our our vessels that carry water ready. We need to drink that living water. We need to sharpen our swords and go to battle for the Lord, and we need to keep going. Do not let your faith falter when it is challenged by the enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. The flaming darts of the evil one are dangerous. Brothers and sisters, take up the shield of faith Take up the sword of truth. Walk humbly and faithfully together with your God. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. When you get ready to walk out of these doors or to wake up in the morning and step out of bed, don't forget the word of God. Don't stop believing. Respond to the word of God with faith. He will deliver on every promise. We need to believe every promise.
Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we turn our hearts away from you in unbelief. We thank you that because of Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins. We thank you that when we confess them, he is faithful and just to not just forgive them, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We recognize, Lord, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. And we thank you that when we cling to Christ, when we are joined to Jesus, you take us sinners and you make us your saints. We thank you that in Christ, we do not know you as judge, but as father. And so we come before you this morning in amazement, thinking how marvelous, how wonderful is your love for us. You are our great God and King. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.